right. Ooh, we're awake now. After this weekend, I don't know. I don't know how awake I actually am, but here we are. Welcome to Manny's. Uh, thank you all so much for being here. Um, I am not normally nervous. I don't get nervous in my own space, but I'm I'm a little nervous about tonight because it's so important to me what happens in this room. Um, hold on a second. Um, when I first opened this space, this was exactly the vision I had for what we would do here. And I don't know why it's taken me almost four years <laughs> to actually do it. Um, but before social media, things like this, real old school town halls, where human beings got to talk to human beings about the issues that matter and the things that they're reading about in the news, questions that they have, that, ha that was a lot more commonplace. Uh, but these days, there's a digital town hall. And my opinion on the matter is a lot is lost in translation. And there's a lot that we don't actually get to see and hear and feel. And when you're actually in front of someone and you ask them a question or you wonder about something, uh, there's, there's a listening that happens. There's a respect that happens. And we're going to model that in this room tonight. So nod your head if you're with me. Great. So normally, this is a no rules kind of spot. We, it's, a, it's a commons. It's a living room. But tonight, given uh, this is our first time doing this old school town hall, there will be a couple ground rules. The first one I've kind of already mentioned, which is respect, civility. Um, there are people in this room, maybe right next to you, that fiercely disagree with your stance on this man and the work that he has done. And you know what? We're all San Franciscans in the end. And it's okay to disagree. That's fine. We want that. Just disagree with respect. One person, one mic. So we have Tomas on this side. Angelina on this side, and she will be, they will both be walking around having with wireless mics. Uh, and the only person able to speak, including myself, will be the person that has the mic in front of them. So if someone said something you like or don't like, could do me a favor and keep it to yourself. It's 60 seconds per person. We have one hour with the district attorney. So we want to get as many people asking questions as possible. Please try to keep it as a question, um, given, again, how many people are in the room, the limited time that we have. We really want this to be a question and answer. Uh, so try to keep comments to yourself. Really make it a question. The other thing is, uh, you know, Chessa is a person that represents, in case you didn't notice, and he, he, he has a staff and he represents an office and a department. And so some things are, you know, about him. Some things is about the work that he's done, uh, criminal justice, the city. Uh, and so I would just uh, encourage you to keep your questions um, to be maybe a little bit more than just about him and what he thinks. Feel free to ask anything you want. But I also encourage you to think a little bigger about the state of our city, the work that his office has done or not done, in your opinion. Um, and then I should just say Manny's is, is, a, is a place that's safe for everyone. Whether you think Chester Boudin is doing a great job or not a great job, should be recalled, shouldn't be recalled, you like his suit, you don't like his suit. Um, you're all welcome here because we're at the end of the day, we all want our city to be the best place possible. Last thing, if you do get unruly, uh, Precious, who just walked in the room, um, has the uh, exclusive power to gently, but in the most Southern of ways, escort you out of, uh, out of this place. We call this uh, room the living room, and that's because I wanted it to feel like a home. But just like you can, uh, yes, and please silent your cell phones, Nancy, and everyone else uh, now. Someone show Nancy how to silence her cell phone. Uh, but just like in your own house, if you have an unruly house guest, you'll kick them out. Oh, my goodness gracious. All right. We ready? So the way this is going to work is I'm going to call on you. You're going to be Tomas and Angelina are going to run to you, hold the microphone in front check, of you. Check. You'll ask your question. 
And then um, we'll just keep it moving throughout the night. This is not a moderated talk. This is just the town hall. Precious, did I miss anything? Thank you. Awesome. All right. With that, I will sit down and I will call on the first person. Please raise your hand. Right over here, Tomas. How you doing? Uh, I am a second generation native. Uh, I have noticed the town get a bit more violent, but not bit, a lot more violent than it used to be. Uh, I know there are a lot of factors involved in that. What are your views on the new, um, in the new, uh, I guess, not theories, but uh, procedures that they're talking about implementing for not for conservatorship, basically, because I don't understand how you can be on a drug and unable to properly uh, take care of yourself, but you can check yourself out and all, all that kind of thing. What, what is your stance on that? Well, first of all, let me just say thank you all for coming. Thank you to Manny for hosting us all. And um, it's a sad day indeed when he has to remind people that I'm human, um, but I appreciate it. And we're all human. And uh, as Michael Franti, uh, also a San Francisco resident, um, often wears on his T-shirts and his hats, stay human. And let's all do that. And that's the goal. Um, to your question, and it, and it really actually ties in with that to some extent, um, we're dealing with a tremendous array of human suffering in our city. And it's something that I think must shock us to our core every time we see it. We can't get numb to the human suffering that we see, whether it be drugs, mental illness, extreme poverty, violence. And it's also something that makes us feel unsafe. Um, I have a wife and a six month old baby at home and I want them just like all of us want and deserve to be able to walk down the street and feel safe and be safe. And sometimes seeing people who are behaving erratically, whether it be because of substance use, whether it be because of untreated mental illness or both makes us feel unsafe. And we know that sometimes folks use violence. And if they're behaving unpredictably, that can be cause for concern. Conservatorships are one tool among many available to the government to intervene in those kinds of situations. Now, one thing that most folks probably don't know is my office has almost no role whatsoever in conservatorships. So I'm happy to address the question and share my views, but I wanna preface it by saying, we do not seek conservatorships except for in the narrowest category of cases. Since 2018, a bill that I believe was sponsored by then supervisor, now mayor London Breed, conservatorships were taken out of the purview of the district attorney's office and given to the city attorney's office. So we're really not involved in that process at all. Um, my views on conservatorships are that they are both underused and overused. And let me explain what I mean by that. There are a lot of people who probably would benefit from conservatorships if there were resources available for conservators to direct those folks to. A conservatorship in and of itself is largely meaningless if we don't have a place that's offering appropriate levels of treatment and supervision to send people to. And I think the first step has to be to create those services and those resources. Once we do that, I hope and I expect that some folks will voluntarily accept those services. Right now, they don't exist, even often for judges who want to court mandate people to get them. 
taking away somebody's liberty through a conservatorship is a extreme step. And it's an extreme step that we as a society should take only after establishing clearly that it's really the only option, but it do anything without placement options, resources, um, supervision. And right now, conservators and judges have far too few options for treatment. All right, next question. Tomas, are you still there? Right over here. And he's just gonna hold the microphone in front of you. Is, is there any criminal offense that you would sure, advocate sure. for extended prison time? And if so, what would that be? There's, there's a long list, thank you for the question. Yeah, there's a long list, murder, rape, armed robbery. Um, I could go on, assault with a deadly weapon. Um, we send people to prison on a regular basis in San Francisco. I've always said it is and should be a last resort, but I certainly believe that it's appropriate for those kinds of crimes, for violent crimes, uh, as well as for repeat offenders. And um, I'm proud of the fact that over the two years and a bit I've been in office, we've increased our charging rate for sexual assault. We've increased our conviction rate for homicide cases. And we filed more than 10,000 new criminal cases. Um, I'm not a believer in the death penalty. I'm proud that we got the last person off of California's death row that was out of San Francisco County. I'm proud that we found ways to focus on root causes of crime and to reduce reliance on incarceration as a primary response to the tremendous array of social problems that for decades have been dumped on the criminal justice system. But if your question is, do I believe there are people who should go to prison? Absolutely. And let me tell you one of the reasons why I say that with such an emphatic tone. As you probably know, both of my biological parents spent most of my life in prison. My mom did 22 years before she was released. My father served 40 years in prison. There are those folks who are prison abolitionists. And I think it's an important conversation for us to have from a theoretical standpoint. I think we can have meaningful conversations about what that would look like as a practical matter, how we would get from here to there. And I believe we all want to live in a society where we don't need jails or prisons because we don't have crime. We all would like that, as fanciful as it may sound from where we are today. But I heard stories my entire childhood about some of the people living on my parents' cell blocks. I met some of them in prison visiting rooms. I heard stories year after year after year. And many of those people didn't need to be in prison. And others absolutely did. And I know that well in our challenge in my office and my job is sorting out which ones are which. We don't have a crystal ball. We do our best with imperfect information. All right, Angelina, how about this side? Over here, Angelina with the arm up. How have you uh, drawn the line between the responsibility of your office and SFPD, and why is it the right line? Love a short question. <laughs> it's not really a line that I draw. Um, it's a line that exists based on the city charter and funding streams and the state statutes. What do I mean by that? There's a lot of focus on my office when it comes to the criminal justice system. And the reality is like so many systems, it depends on lots of different actors, each playing their role. And we're interdependent. 
So the police are probably up there with us in terms of the amount of attention they get. But there's lots of other, maybe below the radar, parts of the system that are tremendously important to doing justice in any case that gets filed in San Francisco or where there's a crime committed. So you've got the police, you've got the DA, you've got the court, the judges, you've got the sheriff's department, they run the jail and the courthouse. You've got probation and parole. All of us rely on each other. There's other agencies as well, the FBI, the federal prosecutors. I could go on. But every day we interact with each other. Every single case that that involves a, a crime being committed probably involves all of those agencies in one way or another. Now, one of the ways in which we draw lines is based on our funding and our mandate. So I want to give you a couple examples of where those lines are drawn. I was leaving an event not long ago at um, SF State, and someone recognized me as I was walking out of the event onto the street and said, um, when are you going to start making arrests? I said, I'm not. That's not what we do. In fact, the district attorney's office doesn't have a single car in our entire department with a cage for transporting an arrestee. It's literally not what we do. We're not set up for it. We don't get notified when somebody calls 911. We don't even get notified when police write a police report, unless and until they make an arrest and present that case to us formally for us to make a charging decision. That's not a line I'm drawing. It's why the police have a budget that's literally 10 times bigger than my budget. They're staffed 24 seven, they're on call to respond to every corner of the city. And it's their responsibility under the charter based on their funding to respond to, investigate crimes and make arrests where appropriate. It's our responsibility once that happens, which in San Francisco is in about 8% of reported crimes to decide whether we can prove a charge beyond a reasonable doubt and to handle the court proceedings from there. All right. Um, in the back, we have Phil. Tomasi, just go around. Jeffrey, if you don't mind. Thank you. And then we're going to come to the front. Yes, right over there, Tomas. Okay. Hey, um, So one aspect of progressive prosecution is um, uh, an attempt to rely less or to, I guess, discourage over-policing. And this is part of a national conversation that we're having in many cities across the country. And I'm curious in your experience so far as DA, um, how your um, perspective or analysis of the policing statistics in San Francisco compared to those of other big cities like LA, Chicago, that have um, maybe more uh, blatant histories of police brutality, uh, po over-policing, how San Francisco uh, compares to, the, uh, to those cities in your experience so far and how that experience has allowed you to calculate your charging decisions as a result? Well, first of all, I want to give credit where credit's due. The San Francisco Police Department has a much higher clearance rate or, or solve rate for homicides than most other big cities that you mentioned. Um, and those are the cases that, back to the first question, that are in most instances, in my view, and we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, appropriate for lengthy prison sentences. Those are cases that have by far the highest consequences, not only for the people we're accusing of committing the crime, but also for the victims. We can't undo that harm by definition and the entire community, the family who's left behind. So I want to give credit to SFPD. They solve those cases, homicide cases, at a much higher rate than most other jurisdictions. Overall, clearance rates in San Francisco, as I said, they're about 8% right now. 
there was a study, uh, I think it was released last week by the Center for Juvenile and Criminal Justice that did exactly what you're asking, compared the San Francisco Police Department to police departments in other big cities across the state of California. Um, I think it relied primarily on SFPD's own data, and it found that SFPD makes arrests and, and clears a lower percentage of reported crime than I think any other big city in their comparison. Um, so that's that's not a good thing. Um, I've talked to Chief Scott about this a lot, and I know he and I agree on a lot of things, one of them being the need for police to prioritize homicides, shootings, the more serious crimes. Um, I know he and I would both like it if police had a higher clearance rate in other categories, like auto burglaries, where it's about 2% that gets solved. Um, you know, when it comes to use of force, there's actually an article in today's Chronicle, um, I think today's online edition, maybe tomorrow's print, that I was just reading on my way here that looks at use of force. And it indicates that SFPD has made real progress in reducing the total number of use of force incidents, but that there's been um, a continuation of racial disparities in who gets stopped, who gets searched, and who is a on the receiving end of police use of force, and that African-Americans in San Francisco continue to be vastly more likely to be stopped, searched, and victims of use of force um, than whites or even Hispanics. All right, let's go back to this side of the room. Any questions? Right over there, and then we'll get to you next, my friend in the front. We'll move backwards. So right over here. Um, I'm just hoping you can speak broadly to like your office's relationship to diversion programs, because I know in the report it says that um, you've sent a lot more folks to diversion programs than your pre predecessor. So just give us some background on that. Great. Well, first of all, let me sort of define what diversion is and talk about the changing landscape, because one part of it is my office and our policies. Another big part of it is state law um, and, and the court. So I want to talk about all that. Um, Diversion, for folks who aren't familiar, is a broad kind of catch-all category of um, alternatives to traditional prosecution. It can be anything from parental diversion, which is a creation of state law, mental health diversion, a creation of state law. Um, it could be a pre-charging diversion, which uh, has been employed in San Francisco since well before I was the DA in the form of our neighborhood courts. It can be pretrial diversion, which is its own subcategory of primarily misdemeanor offenses that, again, going back to the 70s or 80s, has been administered in San Francisco by the nonprofit, the San Francisco Pretrial Diversion Project, also uh, covered by state law. In 2020, a new law took effect that dramatically expanded the categories of crimes that are eligible for diversion. In 2019, another state law took effect that, that also created a new kind of diversion. I think in 2017 or 18, uh, mental health diversion went onto the books. So over the last five years, since even before I was the DA, at the state level, there's been a creation of diversion programs. And there's a few reasons for that. One is a recognition that mass incarceration was really expensive, really ineffective, really inhumane, and ultimately um, was kind of... Um, bankrupting our state, morally and financially. And so the state legislature, after being ordered by the U.S. Supreme Court to reduce the number of people in prison, started implementing, and that U.S. Supreme Court order was 
because the overcrowding was so extreme that they, the U.S. Supreme Court, not a bastion of progressivism, um, though we have some cause for hope with the hearings today, and we'll come back to that hopefully, um, found that our state prisons were violating the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment every day because of overcrowding and lack of access to medical care. So the state legislature started finding alternatives and they focused on certain categories like mental illness or parents or low level first time offenders. And they created specific statutory frameworks for judges and DAs to follow so that those folks didn't end up in jail or prison, but instead got treatment and community supervision. Um, I ran a campaign in 2019, very explicitly committed to getting at root causes of crime. And we know, we all know, whatever our views on these issues, we all know that if somebody is severely mentally ill and we put them in a cage for a day or a week or a month or a year or 10 years, we're not solving their mental illness. So when we have the option and it's statutorily appropriate or even mandated to send someone to court supervised mental health care, I believe in many instances, not all, but in many instances, that is a more humane and more effective way to do justice and to protect our community and advance safety. I am proud of diversion because we've seen empirical evidence from San Francisco and across the country that people who successfully complete diversion are less likely to be rearrested than people who simply serve a jail sentence and get released on probation. All right, for question up here in the front. Tomas will come and hand you the, he'll just hold the mic in front of you. Hi, so I have to say that my son is severely mentally ill and his life was saved by the neighborhood court. And he hasn't had a drink since he was in court. But he also still is not on the radar screen from San Francisco Department of Health. So given that Newsom's CARES court uh, is how do you feel that CARES Court is going to affect more or less mentally ill prison um, people getting arrested in the hope that they'll get into CARES Court? Because if they're not in jail, it is very hard for them to agree to go to this court. So how do you think if this passes, it's going to affect the prison population or your population? Thank you. First of all, thank you for your advocacy for your son. Um, we need more community members, family members who stand by and support folks when they're struggling. And it makes a difference. Um, my, you know, I have, I have family that have been on the streets addicted, and I know that the love and support from family can literally save lives. It can get people back on their feet. It can get them jobs and housing and sobriety, and it can't cure all the world's problems, but it can do an awful lot. So thank you for that. Your question, I think the at a high level, the thing that's most important about Newsom's announcement is a recognition, which in my view is long overdue, that this is a statewide problem. This is not a problem that's limited to or unique to San Francisco. It's not a problem that we can solve on our own. You drive across the bridge to Oakland or Berkeley or you go to Sacramento or San Diego and you see really similar problems. You see poverty and addiction and mental illness and race, all on really, really ugly display. And we've got to do a better job. We cannot expect that individual municipalities are going to solve these problems. Um, to your point about care court being connected to arrests, 
I think that that is a fair criticism. And as I said earlier with the conversation about about conservatorships, the first step in my mind is to create services and programs. Right now, there's, whether you're in jail waiting for a bed that's court mandated, whether you're on probation looking for a treatment plan, whether you're trying to avoid going to jail, um, we don't have the programming. We don't have the supervision. We don't have the therapy. We don't have the resources. And so I'm a big proponent of treatment on demand. I believe that if San Francisco is serious about addressing the homelessness we see, about addressing the mental illness and the overdoses, the first step cannot simply be a carceral response to those problems. It must be to create universal access to treatment. We cannot continue to turn people away who say, I want to get sober or who say, I need help. I need to see a doctor. We cannot continue to do that and wait for them to commit a crime. It is jeopardizing all of our safety. It is also undermining our humanity. All right, next question. I want to get geographic diversity. So I'm trying to move over there. Are there Angelina, the individual with the poofy vest? Hi there. Um, she'll, she's going to hold the mic in oh, front of you. Yeah. Thank you, Angelina. Um, so I want to address the fact that so many of these uh, departments are broken. And then it seems to me that you're the scapegoat and that there's still a lot of fixing that needs to happen. I'd like to find out what's being done um, regarding conservatorship so that the nonprofits that are anti-conservatorship um, won't be winning the race because they have so many dollars backing them. And secondly, in the diversion program, what percentage of those people who go into diversion um, actually complete the program in our neighborhood, in our San Francisco. Thanks for the question. On the first point about conservatorship, as I said earlier, my office is not involved. Um, it's the city attorney that does that. And so as much as I'd love to, to, to take a deep dive and I'm happy to share my personal views, it's really beyond the purview of, of what my office does. And the, the power, um, to your point about scapegoat, it, we don't, I'm not Batman. We don't have all powers. We can't get involved in the city attorney's jurisdiction. Um, I know um, David Chu has a team of lawyers that work on that issue, that have done it for years, and that are experts both in the legal issues and the resource allocation issues. Um, to, your, to your other question about um, you know, how we work with, with different agencies, there's, there's a lot of work to do. And I think what I hear when I talk to voters, when I listen to people in the community is that people are upset. People are frustrated with the state of our city. They're frustrated with everything from the high taxes to the lack of homeless shelter beds, to the public corruption at so many government agencies. They're frustrated with the way that our city has suffered over the last two years because of COVID. And I share that frustration and I want to do better. Um, I'm proud of the hard work the folks in my office have done over the last couple of years. I also know that I haven't really had a chance to govern properly. Um, I'm not making excuses, I'm just stating facts here, but I took office in January, 2020. Less than two months later, I was told by the Department of Public Health that I and my staff couldn't go into our office. I was literally still trying to decorate and get set up. And I was told you can't go to the office. I had to learn what Zoom was, I never heard of that before. And I had to then try to get plants at home so that I had a Zoom background that was appropriate. And 
I spent the next year trying to figure out how to run an office remotely. My second year in office, we were still dealing with the COVID pandemic, but I also had to contend with not one, but two separate recall attempts, both with massive amounts of Republican money, gathering signatures, hiring paid signature gatherers to stand in every park in front of the DMV, every grocery store in the city to spread lies about my office. And now at the very beginning of my third year in office, I've got to spend the next six, first six months of the year campaigning. So as much as I would love to say, well, here's, here's what I've done and you know, here's the record and here's the time I've had to do it. The reality is we haven't had a chance to run the office. Despite that, we've made really critical strides. And I want to be clear, we have a lot of work to do. I share the frustration. My wife shares the frustration that so many voters in San Francisco feel over the state of our city. And yet, as I look back at what we've done in these two years via Zoom, we created an independent innocence commission to make sure innocent folks are not languishing behind bars. We filed the first ever homicide charges against San Francisco police department officer who shot and killed an unarmed black man. We tried the first ever excessive force case against a San Francisco police department officer. We created a worker protection unit so that we're holding powerful gig economy companies accountable the same way we hold everybody else accountable. We filed a landmark lawsuit against three ghost gun manufacturers, companies that are profiting off of violence in our community, off of pain and death, because we don't want them shipping their weapons into our neighborhoods. We are doing the work that we promised slowly but surely. And it's precisely because we're following through on those promises, ending money bail, reducing juvenile incarceration. It's precisely because we're following through despite the challenges that I'm facing this recall. And um, we're gonna get to you next with the next question and then you, but I'm gonna take moderator's uh, privilege and ask a quick one right now, which is um, because we, we've asked, there've been a lot of questions about your policies and what you wanna do, but, um, for those who don't know you, you know, your name is in the news a lot. You see all these articles being written about you, op-eds, ads with your face on it. Um, I guess I just wanted to ask you this point in time, like, how are you doing as a, how are you doing? Like, how, how, do, what does it feel like to see, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, opine about you? And then how are you just doing emotionally given where you are in the state of our city right now? My son was born September 3rd. And it's my first son. I've been an uncle. I've got three nieces and nephews in the East Bay and two nieces in Chicago. Um, but it's life-changing. And, and for those of you who know, you know. And for those of you who don't yet, wait till you're ready. Um, but it's, when you're ready, it's really an amazing thing. And it puts everything in perspective, um, the good and the bad and the ugly. Um, it means a lot less sleep. It means even longer hours of work. Um, but it also is why I'm doing this work. And, and that ties into the second part of your question. You know, it's like there are people who are in politics because they like seeing their name in the paper or because they want to be career politicians. I'm in this job. I ran for office because my entire life has been defined by the criminal justice system, by mistakes my parents made and how our society chose to respond to those mistakes. I don't remember my parents' arrests. But as my son is learning to sit up on his own, he's starting to eat solid foods. I'm trying to teach him how to drink out of a sippy cup with a 12-point plan. My wife says it's over his head. Um, 
but I'm a lawyer, so that's my tendency. Um, it really makes me reflect back on my own childhood. And I, I don't remember, I, I don't remember when I even understood what my parents had done, but I do remember going through steel gates and metal detectors to visit my parents. And I remember the other kids who were in those lines, mostly black and brown, mostly with their mothers. And I remember some of them ending up in prison with their own mothers or with my father. We have got to do better. I, I will be fine. I will be fine. I've got an amazing son. He's got the best smile in the world. But we as a city have got to do better. And that's, I'm just, it's an honor and it's a privilege to have the chance to try and do better because our criminal justice system has been failing us for generations. And I want my son to grow up in a city, a city he was born in that reflects his values and one that he's safe to walk around no matter who he is, what identity, what orientation, what gender he chooses. I want him to be safe to express himself, to play with his friends. And I want it to be a city that builds that safety with the values we in San Francisco hold dear. Thank you. <clears throat> Next question. Hi there. Um, I really want to kind of ask you about the operational workings of your office. Um, I completely agree with what you said with regards to it's kind of like a large collaborative effort between multiple departments. Could you please speak to your relationship and dynamic with the SFPD, why it's been so tumultuous and how you guys hope to kind of make it better in the future? And two, could you talk about the numerous high profile departures from the DA's office at the start of your tenure? At the start of my tenure, we released um, six or seven folks. And, you know, for point of comparison, I was about 2% of the overall staff. When uh, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia took office, I think it was closer to 30% of the folks that were fired. So it was a really uh, small amount of turnover uh, from that perspective. Um, another maybe point of comparison might be when President Biden took over, he had nearly 100% turnover in his cabinet. Um, you expect someone who's newly elected, especially on a mandate for change, to be able to bring in some of some new management and some new energy and some folks who are aligned with the promises they made to voters so they can implement that vision. And that's what we've done. Um, I'm also proud, speaking of that, to say that we've brought back more than a dozen or in that neighborhood, roughly a dozen former employees who used to work in the DA's office, who went off to work in other agencies, the attorney general, other county district attorneys, um, other police departments around the state. And they came back to work for me and my administration. And we've brought people from domestic violence experts to former police officers to victim advocates who used to be in our office and left under prior administrations and then came back. Um, so I, I think that speaks really highly about the work we're doing and the culture we're building, even in the face of having to work remotely. Um, to your other question about the police department, the most important thing to remember is this. It's not a new problem. Let's go back in time to before some of us in this room were born. Let's go back to Terrence Hallinan. Police department attacked him viciously. It's part of perhaps why he lost in a race to Kamala Harris, who the police department also attacked viciously. What was their main issue with her? She wouldn't seek the death penalty. And she was attacked by local press. There was a big headline front page story in the examiner with a picture of her that said lack of convictions criticizing her conviction rates. You can Google it and pull it up. Lack of convictions, Kamala Harris. Police union went after her. Local press went after her. 
And when she was replaced by D.A. Gascon, who had been the chief of the San Francisco Police Department, this isn't an outsider, a, 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 a reformer, a civil lawyer, a defense attorney. He was a career police officer, the chief of the SFPD. Well, when he was police chief, when he was D.A., the police attacked him relentlessly. The police union, they went around and told victims of crime that they wished they could help them, but that the police were powerless because the DA wouldn't prosecute anyway. Sound familiar? We're hearing that crime victims across San Francisco are hearing that every day. Police know better. The police union knows better. And there are so many hardworking men and women in the San Francisco Police Department who serve with pride and integrity. And it is a disgrace that the police union continues to undermine cooperation, to undermine public safety, and to undermine public trust by spreading lies about whoever it is that holds the seat I'm in. Angelina, there's a person with red hair. Um, I'm colorblind, so I can't pinpoint exactly who has red hair, but there's someone in the back. Um, sorry. Yeah. Um, I just wondered, I wanted to go back a bit to the questions about care court and addiction and homelessness as someone who has a family member has also been impacted by that. I really appreciate your, what you've said about the need for services and programs. And I'm wondering um, what you think about like whether the resources is, exist now or what you think it would take for them to be there, and if not, whether proposals like Care Court, which to me seem like they have a lot of promise, could lead to more arrests and criminalization without adequate resources to take care of people. There's a lot in that question, and it actually reminds me that I didn't answer part of a question um, from the red. Uh, it's not a vest, Manny. It's a jacket. I said poofy jacket. I thought you said poofy vest. Did I say poofy vest? I don't Sorry. Know. Somebody's got a video camera. We'll ask. Oh God! Channel Seven. What did I say? The um, And the part of that question that dovetails with your question is the, the question about diversion rates and successes. And, and so I'm sorry I missed that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to it now. It's really important that we recognize everybody in this room, I know, despite the different views we have, we all would love to have a magic bullet, a panacea, something that could solve all of the problems we're talking about. We don't have that. We need to be honest about the fact that we haven't figured out a solution that can just solve schizophrenia or opioid addictions, right? Those are problems that despite advances and despite science, we have imperfect solutions to. And the same thing is true for repeat criminal offenders, whether it's behavior motivated by addiction and, 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 and mental illness or whether it's motivated by something else. We don't have a perfect solution. So when we evaluate the success of diversion programs or something like care court, the baseline that we compare it to cannot be the hypothetical perfect world that doesn't exist anywhere. It has to be the reality of the alternatives available to us. And let's just talk for a minute about what those look like. In California as a state, regardless of whether you're coming from a red county or a blue county, a traditional DA's office or a reform prosecutor, our state prison system historically has failed to the tune of 66%. What do I mean by that? About two thirds of people getting out of prison, whether it's after 20 years or two years, will be reincarcerated. That's the baseline. If we can do better than that, if we can reduce it to 50% or 45% or 30%, we're winning in ways that every stock market investor would be ecstatic about. 
right? Those percentages are huge when it comes to moving the needle around public safety and effective use of limited resources. So our diversion programs are not 100% perfect, but they do a better job than incarceration when it comes to breaking the cycle. And more importantly, unlike incarceration, if diversion doesn't work, meaning if someone doesn't successfully complete the program, we still have the ability to prosecute them criminally. We still have that case pending and we can still send them to jail or put them on probation. So we give ourselves optionality by sending someone to diversion or care court if and when it gets created. I share your concerns about criminalization without resources. I think the first step, whether it's care court, whether it's all the different options that have been talked about, giving more judges, more mandates, giving police more handcuffs or more overtime, it's only going to get us so far with the mentally ill population if we don't have meaningful treatment options available. We've got to invest in that. And I think what that looks like is treatment on demand. We need to have a system where, and I'm primarily talking about demand by the folks who are ill, but also judges who are supervising a case, also emergency room doctors. You know, UCSF put out a report maybe a year ago that looked at the frequency of emergency department visits with jail visits. And it's not going to surprise people, but there's a tremendous amount of overlap between high frequency users of the emergency department and of the jail. Folks who are in and out of both, never getting the intervention or the services or the support that they need to stay out of trouble or to stay healthy. It's tremendously expensive. And it's part of why all of us are so frustrated with, with government, why I share that frustration. All right. It is 719. I'd like to get a couple more questions in. So why don't we go you and then we'll get to you. And why don't we do this? Why don't we bundle a few questions, Chessa? And I'm going to encourage you to keep your answers short. So actually, let's you go. You sound like my wife. Um, wouldn't be the first time. So <laughs> we'll have you and then Angelina, the individual with the mask will be next. Go ahead. Yeah. Hello. <clears throat> so you talked about um, aligning on where our baseline is. So I'd be curious to know on a scale of one to 10, where is our baseline today in your view? Where can we feasibly get to in, let's say, the next eight years, assuming you're reelected? And how do we get there? What's the baseline now? And what do we need to get to for you to get reelected? Question in the back. I just saw on Twitter that you were doing a campaign around um, vacancy taxes. And so I was wondering how that was going, because that seems to me to also be a possibility for in terms of funding. Vacancy tax, that seems to be a possibility in terms of funding. And then why don't we have you be the third question? You're a Rhodes Scholar, so I think you can handle three questions. Do you spell that R-O-A-D-S? <laughs> um, I was reading in the newspaper yesterday, and for those people who don't know what that is, that me may not, it's like the internet, but printed out. Um, but it called you the controversial DA. Do you think you're controversial? And why do you think people think you are? All right, three good questions. Um, let's see if I can keep track. You know, our baseline, I think it really depends on what area you're talking about. I mean, there's so many different facets. There's the policing, there's the prosecuting, there's the courts, there's the diversion programs. Um, our office has about 300 staff. We do a lot of different areas of work. Um, big picture, I think the American criminal justice system is probably somewhere around a three. And I think um, it, it's not unique to one county or one city. I think across the board, we we as a country are failing to do what's needed to make our communities safer and to invest in the kinds of things that build long-term safety. Can we do a lot better over the next eight years? I think so. But let's also remember how long it took 
to build up the system of mass incarceration. It took decades of investment of billions of dollars of jail and prison construction, of building and training prison guard unions and uh, sheriff deputies to guard jails. Those changes don't happen overnight. And so putting aside me and, and my eight-year, 10-year, 12-year, this is not a problem that can be solved only in one jurisdiction. We as a state, we as a country need to invest in the kinds of things that so many of you are asking about tonight, that so many of of us, people of conscience, regardless of our political views, know are critical components of public safety. If we do that, I think in eight years, we can move the needle dramatically. Um, The second question- Vacancy tax. The vacancy tax for folks who aren't familiar is basically a recognition that San Francisco has both a housing crisis and a glut of unoccupied um, apartments that are supposed to be rental apartments and that are simply not being rented. I think there's 40,000 vacant rental apartments. And the idea is to charge a relatively small tax on landlords who have multiple units, not single family homes, but multiple unit landlords who are not putting their units on the market to incentivize them to rent their units, to make sure that people who are working, a lot of my staff paid city and county wages, can't afford to live in the city. And if we have more rental units on the market, it will help deal with the homelessness crisis. Um, The estimate is that it will both create more housing and generate up to $38 million a year in taxes that can be put into building more affordable housing. Um, And then the last question was about controversy. I believe that anything you spend $2 million on can be made to seem controversial. The recall is spent, I mean, for perspective, my campaign to get elected in 2019 spent about 750,000, which we raised in $500 maximum increments. The recall has spent well over $2 million. One chunk of that 600,000 came from a single Republican mega donor same person who gave Mitch McConnell over a million dollars to help pack the Supreme Court, to undermine gun control, to attack Roe v. Wade, to eviscerate voting rights. The folks funding Mitch McConnell's Senate majority are the biggest donors to the recall against me. And yes, if you spend that kind of money in a city like San Francisco, you can make sourdough bread controversial. All right, let's try to get one or two more questions. Okay, ah, this is so hard. Right over there with the dark shirt, yes. Um, and then we'll have you be the last question. I'm sorry, y'all. We just, uh, uh, the district attorney is a hard out at 7.30 and I've told him I'd honor that. So you will be the first and then you'll be the last. And I apologize to anyone that did get a question. Got to keep it tight. All right, uh, thanks for speaking us with us tonight. Um, You've talked a lot about national trends, whether it be in criminal justice or crime. And one of the criticisms I've heard about why San Francisco is so dysfunctional is that we overreact to national news. Um, In San Francisco, the incarceration rate is something like 20% of the national average. So can you speak to more about what are your priorities that you think we need to address uniquely in San Francisco? Um, Yeah. Great. And then don't answer that yet. Next question is over here. Mine's a very practical question. Oh, sorry. Mine's a very practical question. Is there a number, an organization we can call when we see someone on the street having a mental health crisis? All right. Let, let's, let's have the district attorney answer the question. And uh, these are the last two questions of the night. Oh, I like a participatory audience. Appreciate it. 
I totally agree um, that there's often a tendency to overreact to national trends. And, and there are some examples of, of national trends that sort of cut the other direction as well. Um, we're seeing crime skyrocket in places like Oakland and Sacramento and other cities across the country in certain categories that are down in San Francisco. And, and that often gets lost in local media coverage or the Twitterverse conversations about what's happening here. So I, I think it's a really important point. And we need to look at local trends and local issues. You're also right that San Francisco incarcerates folks at a rate way lower than California as a whole. Um, but it depends which subcategory you look at. Um, when I took office in 2019, for example, in, in, at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, San Francisco was incarcerating African-American men at a rate far higher than the peak of the Russian gulag. Let me say that again. San Francisco in 2020, at the beginning of 2020, was incarcerating African-American men at a per capita rate higher than the peak of the Russian gulag. So yes, big picture, we have done as a city a really good job of reducing incarceration, but we haven't done a good job of eradicating racial disparities or of finding ways to make sure that the African-American community in particular is not bearing the brunt of police use of force, of unlawful, systematic stop and search style, uh, stop and frisk style policing. Um, so I think there are local problems that are far worse than the national level, including, frankly, the disproportionality of African-American incarceration stops, searches, and use of force. And there's a Chronicle article that literally went live this afternoon that gives up-to-date statistics on all of that from the SFPD. So I'd encourage you to take a look at the really unique problems we have locally, even as we've done a good job overall reducing incarceration. Um, to the other question, you heard answers from the audience. This is one of those like, uh, what is it, like phone a friend and who wants to be a millionaire, right? We've got different Different, uh, the audience helped out. I asked the audience, they said 311, they said 911. Um, the sad reality, uh, what I hear when I talk to folks um, in San Francisco is that if they call 311, often nobody comes, nothing happens. I see people nodding their heads. If you call 911 when you see someone who needs help, then you risk doing two things, right? One is you risk distracting police from solving a violent crime in progress. And you also risk turning a situation that's not a crime at all into a violent interaction between police and someone who's unhoused. None of us want to do either one of those things. And so often people step over a homeless camp or step around it, feeling guilty, feeling scared, feeling uncertain about what the best course of action is. Now, one of the things that I campaigned on asking the city to do was to create and, and this is based on a model from Eugene, Oregon, CAHOOTS. And it's a model that has worked brilliantly in Eugene, Oregon. About a third of their 911 calls get diverted to this CAHOOTS group. They're not law enforcement officers. They're not carrying guns or badges or wearing uniforms. They are social workers and mental health professionals and overdose prevention specialists. And they handle, as I said, about a third of 911 calls in Eugene, Oregon. It allows the police to be far more effective, faster response times, higher clearance rates for actual crimes in progress. And it encourages folks of conscience to call when they see someone who needs help, who needs services, who needs a place to sleep. And instead of getting a police officer who wants to do the right thing, but doesn't have the training or the tools or the resources, you get a social worker who knows where there's 
shelter bed available or where there's a treatment facility that can provide outpatient services. That's a model that we desperately need in San Francisco. And we've started it. The city has started it, but it is nowhere near the capacity that's needed. It doesn't cover the whole city. It doesn't work 24 hours a day. Can't keep up with the volume of calls. I think if we're serious about reducing police violence, about increasing police clearance rate, about building public safety, then we've got to invest in programs like that one. It's tried, it's tested, it's proven, and we deserve the best here in San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you so much, District Attorney Chesa Boudin. Before uh, we all leave, I have a couple announcements to make. First of all, I'm very proud of us uh, that we did this, and thank you very much. You've made my uh, dream come true by uh, by by showing that we can actually have a productive, nuanced uh, back and forth on one of the hottest issues of the day uh, in our city. So thank you so much for being here and doing this. Um, first, I want to let you know uh, that this is a free event, and I'm very proud to say that it is. It is not free to run a small business in San Francisco. Um, just my pg and bill costs $2,000 a month. So if you do want to donate, uh, you can. And also, there are some... Sponsors in the audience. The sponsors are actually how we are staying alive. Uh, and Precious over there in the back, uh, who is our director of programming, can answer any questions about becoming a sponsor. It's $36 a month. Um, a couple of things about exit. So everyone, please exit through the back door on the right-hand side. And as you leave, if you want to be part of making this a real community space, then you can help Angelina, our events manager, out by by stepping on the back of your folding chair and placing it on one of the pillars so that she doesn't have to spend an hour picking up folding chairs. I want to acknowledge Darian Gamora is our digital marketing associate and his father and sister are over there um, watching. I think this is their first Manny's event. So be interested to see what you think about it afterwards. We're going to be sending all of you a little survey in your email to see what you and what your ideas are. Last thing, a couple upcoming events. Our next uh, old school town hall will be April 28th, and it'll be with our director of transportation, Jeffrey Tumlin. Uh, so a lot of you may not know, but our transit agency is in charge of the whole transit system, cable cars, subway, all that, and everything that happens on the streets, parking, taxis, bike lanes, all of that. So please come to that. Two other upcoming events. Tomorrow we have Kara Swisher, the New York Times columnist and host of Sway. Uh, and then on April 12th, it's a while out, but I want to put it in your memory, your minds. We have Senator Cory Booker and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand coming together. Uh, it'll be in person. So the Senator of New York and one of the Senators of New Jersey, it'll be a fundraiser for the Senate majority. Um, the last thing I'll say is please do take a picture of us if you'd like right now and post it and tag at Welcome to Manny's and share what it was like going to an actual town hall in person in San Francisco uh, and so we encourage you to do it. It's at Welcome to Manny's. Please share your stories. Did I miss anything? No? Go forth and conquer. Please leave through that back door. Appreciate it. Oh, yes. And actually, take a second. Let Chessa exit through this way. He's got it bolted in the front. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you.